Greetings and welcome to Coming on the Clouds. Coming on the Clouds. We are preparing our hearts for the Easter celebration, and it's right and proper and biblical to prepare for this time when we celebrate Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. After all, Jesus himself prepared for this celebration with his disciples as he arranged the donkey as he arranged the room that they were going to meet in and to have their meal and arranged for the preparation of the meal itself. So they were preparing for the Passover celebration during the last week of uh, Jesus' ministry with them before his crucifixion. And we likewise are preparing. We're preparing our hearts to receive him, to celebrate this time together, to understand it anew. And it is my prayer today. I'm excited about what we're going to see today because it is my prayer that you will receive something more to your Easter celebration, that you will think of an aspect of the, the celebration of the crucifixion and resurrection maybe you hadn't considered before. And that is the importance of Jesus' current reign here upon the earth through his people and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us prepare ourselves to receive him and let us then go to the uh, scriptures and see what we can understand of them. Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 26. So as you turn in your Bibles, as you prepare to engage in Matthew chapter 26, I'll remind you of what we spoke of before in the one in the sermon called the servant of the Lord. We talked about various motifs that we find in the scripture. And the servant motif is one that speaks of many good servants throughout the scripture, but are ultimately pointing to the greatest servant of all, Jesus Christ. And so we want to be aware of this servant motif as it's found in scripture and to be able to uh, apply that to Jesus Christ. Well, today we're going to look at, at another motif, and this is the divine son of God. And Jesus is going to proclaim himself to be this divine son of God during these trials. And he's going to do it in a way that they completely understood. But it is a way that we often don't understand because we don't have the same understanding necessarily that they had of their scriptures or the coming Messiah. And so it takes some understanding, some digging, some searching through the scriptures to understand this for ourselves. And, but we have the benefit of this tremendous hindsight given us by the New Testament, which makes the connections necessary to see what Jesus really meant when he said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So let's take a look at beginning in Matthew chapter 26, verses uh, 57 to 68. Let's take a look at this here. Here's what it says there. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two witnesses, too, came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, 
From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, it's our sincerest desire that we understand the words Jesus said, that we understand why it is that there was such a violent reaction to what he said. Because, Lord, this will clue us in, this will teach us about who he is and ultimately what he has done and what he is doing in this world. So write these important truths in our heart by the power of your Spirit. Give us understanding and let us, Lord, be equipped by these things to go out and further the kingdom work that Jesus began. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you see the scriptures there for yourself and you see that they asked Jesus, they pressed him on these things, and finally putting him under oath, pressed him to answer whether he was the Christ, the Son of God, and he answers, and their response to his answer is quite violent. So what we want to focus on today are basically three aspects of this scene here. We want to look at the trial itself. We want to look at this crucial question that was asked by the priest, and then we want to look at what many call a cryptic answer that Jesus gave. And that will serve as our outline today uh, as we speak about coming on the clouds. So first of all, I want to talk about this corrupt trial. This is at least the second trial. If you harmonize the Gospels together, you know, the, the four different Gospels with four different perspectives of the same events that happen, you can put together that basically there were six trials of Jesus, three of them before the Jews, three of them before the Gentiles. And so it's all really quite a mess. There was quite a lot of moving about that night. And I hope you get that impression when you read the Gospels that he was moved from here to there and, and put through all these things and, and treated shame, shamefully in every place he went. And this is at least the second one, the first one being before Annas, who was the previous high priest, and the chief character here is Caiaphas, the current high priest. This is the son-in-law of Annas, who was the former high priest, and Annas, in fact, was still alive. In fact, uh, it was Annas who saw Jesus first in these trials. He was the patriarch. He was the uh, kind of the godfather of the, the high priest office at this time because he reigned and then many of his sons, including Caiaphas, his son-in-law, reigned after him. But the high priest office was supposed to be a lifetime appointment. But the Romans, when they had moved in, they saw the importance of the office and decided this has to be a political office. This has to be something we appoint. So the Romans were meddling in the affairs of the Jews by appointing the high priest. But nevertheless, it always seemed to be from this family, because this family must have somehow been friendly with the Romans. They had it in with them somehow. They made promises to keep order, to keep the Jews under control, not conflict with Rome. The high priest had charge of the temple business, which was big business for the amount of money coming in and all the exchange and everything else. Remember, Jesus twice threw a fit in this place 
and and spoke <laughs> sorry about the change there and and overturned tables and things like that because this was a corrupt enterprise there was profit being made from people coming to worship god in the temple as god had told them to and so they were no stranger to jesus the high priest family they knew full well who he was because he had interrupted their business at least twice and so this man was not good for business, preaching what he preached and things of this nature and, and holding people to account to true religion. Uh, and so this was partially political, what was happening here. And if we take a look at something Caiaphas had said, Caiaphas himself had said in the book of John, he had prophesied to make it clear that he would sacrifice Jesus for the nation. It's very interesting how that takes place. Chief priests in the council, this is John chapter 11, they gathered around and they said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So you see the dilemma for the leaders here is if Jesus is allowed to continue, eventually this is going to bring conflict with the Romans. This is going to jeopardize their positions, but it's also going to jeopardize the nation because this could lead ultimately to war. And the Romans uh, had, had a great ability for war and a great propensity for war. And so while the Romans would prefer to keep the peace with the Jews, they weren't afraid to squash a uh, any kind of an uprising with the most brutal force and so if jesus stirred up too much trouble this would be a problem for the council this would be a problem for the priests and so they had to keep a lid on this but this trial this corrupt trial was also illegal in several ways it was illegal in the fact that it was taking place at night by their own rules they weren't supposed to have these kind of things at night and then they brought many false witnesses. And there's very specific laws in the code for the Israelites concerning having false witnesses. And then they condemned Jesus before the next day. See, when they would have a trial properly during the day and they would come down with a guilty plea, they weren't, or a guilty verdict, they actually weren't allowed to announce that verdict or make that verdict until the following day. Now, if they were uh, to uh, find someone innocent of a crime, they could announce that the same day. But when it came to having a guilty verdict, that was supposed to wait a day. Why? To give people a chance to back away from the emotion of the trial, to consider what they have done. In other words, to deliberate upon the proceedings before giving their final verdict of guilty. So there was much illegal about this trial and so this trial was very corrupt the first charge that they bring against him is that he spoke against the temple and we we'll take a look at that and they say this um they bring forward two witnesses which was the minimum requirement of the law was to have two witnesses so they finally found two people to step forward and say well he did say that uh i'm able to destroy the temple of god and rebuild it in three days well jesus did say that but he was saying it of himself and you know those who were around him and his disciples understood he wasn't threatening the temple but nevertheless if he had threatened a temple this would be a charge worthy a very serious charge worthy uh even of severe consequences 
If you look ahead in the book of Acts in chapters 6 and 7, this is ultimately what gets Stephen stoned, is he is speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses. And so while that's not blasphemy per se to speak against the temple or against the law of Moses, was almost blasphemy. And so this is ultimately what got Stephen in great trouble. And you notice Jesus' response at this. Um, the high priest even presses him, says, aren't you going to say anything about this? What do you have to say about this? And Jesus remained silent. And this fulfills, of course, Isaiah, that he didn't defend himself to these things. It's, this is, affirms what we're told in Peter is Jesus is held up as this example to follow. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, God, Jesus entrusted himself to God and he did not answer these things. So the trial is basically going nowhere at this point. And then what happens is Caiaphas kind of changes up his tactics. He decides to put Jesus under oath. And this brings this crucial question. And this crucial question is, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Well, first of all, he begins by saying, I adjure you by the living God. That initiated an oath. And oaths were taken very seriously in those days. That if you would swear something, that you would take it very seriously and that you would tell the truth. This is difficult for us to understand in our age because we stand at a time in which people perjure themselves constantly, particularly in the political arena. They will lie straight to their opponents. They will lie straight to the public. They will lie right in a court of law after having sworn upon God's word to tell the truth. Well, in those days, the person reigning, the judge in a trial, could force someone under oath. And then if they failed to answer questions after that point, then that person would actually be in trouble for not answering the questions. They would be breaking an oath. So by putting Jesus under this oath, now Jesus must answer in some way in order not to be in conflict with the law. And we know that Jesus was blameless and remained blameless. He did not break the law at any time. And so he gives an answer. And so even though this is an illegal court and Caiaphas is probably technically an illegitimate high priest, nevertheless, Jesus respects this oath and gives an answer. And this answer is really what blows everyone's mind. The question again, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus all but claimed that previously in his ministry, but he claims it and more in what we see as his cryptic answer in Matthew 26, 64. Why do I call it cryptic? Not because I think it's cryptic, because after having studied it, I think I understand his answer. But many have looked at his answer and they say, well, that's kind of a strange answer. And why does it upset everyone so much? And what is Jesus really saying? Well, does it bother you that many people think that this answer is cryptic, that Jesus is being evasive here? And to tell you the truth, even if we look and we we cheat, kind of, and we look in our study Bibles and in our commentaries, 
we see cross-references to Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. And if we research those, we will see clearly that he's answering the question, clearly that he's claiming to be Messiah and more. Now, the question that comes to your mind is, all the high priest asked was simply this. He asked, you know, let's, let's go back there just for a moment. And he said, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Why didn't Jesus just say yes? Because he was both. And we know this very clearly. It's plain teaching of the New Testament. Jesus is this Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. He is the Son of God. Why didn't he just make things simple and say yes? Because Jesus wanted to give them and us something more. And so Caiaphas wanted a simple yes so he could just hand Jesus over to the Romans as an insurrectionist. See, if Jesus say, says yes to being Christ, then he is saying that he is someone who has come to lead a rebellion against Rome. At least that was their uh, conception of what Christ would do. The charge of blasphemy that Jesus is ultimately charged with would have to do with speaking against God or speaking wrongly of God. And if Jesus had merely just said, yes, I'm the Christ, there wouldn't have been this charge of blasphemy. So Jesus gave him more than he asked for. Let's look at the answer here. Uh, first of all, part one, Psalm 110. Uh, if we go to the scriptures here, we see this uh, plainly here in 2664. Let me get us there just a moment. Okay. Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand. Seated at the right hand would bring to mind to his hearers and indeed to us Psalm 110 verse 1. Let's go to Psalm 110 here. And indeed then he affirms he's the Messiah and he's a descendant of David. This was understood at the time. So in the near term, what the psalm described, the psalm of David, was the role of the house of David in Israel. But the psalm, as we read it, you'll see it goes way beyond that. And at the time that Jesus is speaking to these people, this was already believed among the people that this psalm spoke of this Messiah to come, a descendant of David who would rule over Israel. And they understood this to be so. And if we take a look at this, Jesus was not making, therefore, any new application of this psalm, but he's simply embracing the application, the interpretation that is there in the minds of his hearers, that he is this future descendant of David, this Messiah. And we'll find that Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Many letters refer to it. And in the book of Acts, it's referred to. Let's take a look and read through it here. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is a ruling power in heaven at the right hand of God. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so this is Zion, this is the area of Jerusalem. And so a scepter, speaking very clearly of a ruler, is going to go forth from Zion. In other words, a ruler comes from Jerusalem. 
Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. And so this, this ruler is going to have devoted followers that are righteous. The idea of them being in holy garments is that they will be themselves righteous. They will be themselves perhaps even priests. And then it goes on in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek is a subject for another time, but this is clearly showing that this kingly role of this coming Messiah was going to include a priesthood, that he was also going to be priest. In Israel, priest and king were separate roles, but here in the Messiah, they're going to be combined. And in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So this one is going to fight and this one's going to conquer with the power of the Lord. The full endorsement and backing of the Lord in heaven himself is going to fight for him. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He's going to have judgment over all nations of the earth, and he is going to have great victory. It says he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Lift up his head as if to receive a crown. Lift up his head in victory. This is a, a great victorious psalm, and it is speaking this one is going to come. He's going to have victory over all the other nations. This kingly priest is, is going to accomplish all this. This is one greater than David. Jesus argued in Matthew chapter 22, uh, based here on verse 1 of this psalm, if we get back to verse 1 here, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, Jesus challenges the Pharisees with this back in Matthew 22. And they were gathered together and he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, everyone knew he was the son of David. So they say to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. And they stopped asking him questions at that point. And it's just very clear because a father is greater than the son. That a son would be a prince, the father is the king. But nevertheless, that's reversed there in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, if this is going to be a descendant of David, David is calling him Lord. But Jesus, by employing this verse, by even referring to the idea of sitting at the right hand of God, uh, the right hand of power, not saying the word God, but saying the right hand of power, uh, he is saying he is this Messiah figure of Psalm 110. And he is using David's own words to, to show that he indeed is greater than David. But there's a second part to this, and it is a reference to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13, in which we are given a glimpse of a divine ruler. Jesus is taking the argument up a notch. He's essentially saying, not only am I the Christ, I'm much more than that. Because take a look at what it says in Isaiah chapter... Um, I'm sorry, that's Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I'll have to correct that on the notes. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And it says this, 
Uh, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven. You see the language there that Jesus employed. There came one like a son of man. And he uses that title, the title he used for himself the most. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So the ancient of days was introduced earlier in the chapter. And that's clearly God. That's clearly God on his throne in heaven, the almighty, the Yahweh Elohim. And so this is the ancient of days. He's presented before him. And this one presented before him uh, is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. How powerful are those words that we see there that this is him who's being given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that the whole world should serve him, all people, nations, languages. This is one that is coming with the clouds of heaven. This is what Jesus is referring to. And Jesus has really taken this up a notch by bringing this up. We see in Daniel chapter 7, it begins with Daniel seeing a vision of four empires, four beasts, which represent the four empires in order, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then an end comes to them all by this one, by the Ancient of Days, by this one brought to the Ancient of Days. And this is a scene in the heavenly throne room. Let's back up here to Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. So multiple thrones. So this is a, a meeting in heaven, a court being held by the king. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So this is none other than Yahweh. And this is Yahweh because this similar description of his throne is given in the book of Ezekiel. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So this is a court scene, the court of a king, not, not a legal court like we're familiar with today, but the court of a king. And this king who is going to judge opens the books and looks at these empires and judges them and decides for their end. And how is that end going to be brought about by this one who comes and is presented before him? Saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came some one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And so this is the one who's going to bring this about. This is the one who's going to bring the end of all these kingdoms. And this is the one that Jesus is now claiming to be. This imagery of coming in the clouds is crucial to understanding what Jesus is saying here. And it's not new imagery. If you look here in Deuteronomy chapter 33, it's used here. There was no one like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies his majesty. In Psalm 68, uh, to him who rides in the heaven, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. This is speaking of Yahweh, the Lord. 
look what it says here. Uh, o kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. Psalm 104, bless the, the Lord, O my soul. And this is Yahweh. See the Lord in all caps in verse 1. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the chariot the clouds his chariot and so here he is riding on the clouds we see this also in isaiah behold the lord this is yahweh again is riding on a swift cloud and comes to egypt and the idols of egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the egyptians will melt within them and so this idea of yahweh he's riding on the clouds this imagery is not something new. You see it there in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament. It's applied in Daniel to this one who is presented before the Ancient of Days. So it's Yahweh being presented to Yahweh. If you really take a look and understand the imagery and these things. And Jesus then clues in on this imagery. And this imagery is not unique to the Bible itself. This was imagery used of gods around the world, specifically Baal, who we speak of in the Old Testament. The Northern Kingdom had a real problem with Baal worship, some in the Southern Kingdom as well. And this false god, this less than god, this Baal, who was worshipped by them, was known in ancient literature as the rider of the clouds. And the Bible picks up this theme because the true rider of the clouds, the true Lord, when he's compared to others, he is shown as, no, he's the one riding the clouds. He is the one above all other gods. There is no one like him. There is nothing, uh, no, nothing that can stand beside him. And so biblical and non-biblical words alike speak of this idea of coming on the clouds as being divine, as being something of God. And it makes sense because we, you know, all through history have thought of the gods or God as being above the heavens, as being something up in the sky. He's way up there. He's up high. He's high and lifted up, as the scripture says. And he would be then beyond the clouds, and the clouds would obscure him somewhat. And this is necessary because, after all, who can stand in the presence of God? And so this powerful and important imagery, Jesus grabs hold of from the book of Daniel to say, oh, I'm something more than what you might think Messiah is. If Jesus had merely said, yeah, I'm the Christ, then he would have allowed them to bring all their baggage into the title. All the ways in which they were wrong about the Christ, they would have brought in and they would have had Jesus confessing to it. But because Jesus says, oh yeah, I'm the Christ, but from now on what you're going to see is you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So he's claiming to be something more than Messiah. He's claiming to be this one that everywhere else in the scripture, when he's coming on the clouds, is Yahweh himself. That is blasphemy. Unless it's true. Think about that. If it's true, then it's not really blasphemy. That he would say that I'm Yahweh, that I'm this one, the rider of the clouds, I'm the one presented before the Ancient of Days, who's capable of an eternal kingdom over the world, 
well, then he is saying indeed that he is God himself. And so this is important for us to see. Some say he could not have meant this because Jesus coming on the clouds speaks of his return to earth. Well, it does, but look what happens in Daniel chapter 7. What's happening there in 7 in Daniel chapter 7 is that this is not Jesus' return. This is Jesus being presented as the one who's going to conquer the nations. And the nations being given over to Jesus, his ruling from Jerusalem or Zion, the place of his crucifixion, the giving over of his kingdom to his holy ones, as it says there and later in that chapter in Daniel, those things are happening now. And the crucifixion and the resurrection began this reign. Let me show you this because this is something that, that I need to, to show you and not just have you take my word for it. We'll go to the scriptures here. Look in Acts chapter 13 verse 33 and this is Paul speaking and Paul says this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm you are my son today have begotten you. And as for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. And he goes on. But nevertheless, look right here. The book ends on either side of you are my son today have begotten you is the resurrection. So Paul connects this begetting of the son as the resurrection. And if we look at Psalm 2-7, what he's speaking of, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. So Paul says, this is happening at the resurrection. This is not happening at the return of Christ. The nations being given to Christ is not something to happen later. It's happening now. It happened when he was raised from the dead, according to Paul. Now let me show you a couple more things Paul said just to drive this point home. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he speaks of Jesus and said, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And so it was at his resurrection that he was declared to be the Son of God in power. And so this is powerfully important for us to understand. And this is our mission to bring about the obedience of all nations. Look how he goes through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So here Paul is connecting the resurrection of Jesus to his being declared the son of God and to our mission of subduing the nations and bringing about obedience. How? By the spreading of the gospel. That's what the book of Romans is about, is the gospel. And Paul is all about spreading the gospel. He's not about taking over governments. He's not about putting himself in power to enforce Christianity in some kind of way. No, the subduing of the nations is the gospel. And this is why Jesus tells us all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you go and you make disciples of all nations. Look how Paul puts this in Ephesians, and this will really clear things up for us here, particularly verse 20. Uh, these things he worked in Christ, that is our salvation, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So it's at the raising from the dead that Jesus is seated at the right hand. And obviously you have there 
a little bit of time after his resurrection, he appeared to the disciples. Then he ascended into heaven, took his place, seated at the right hand of God. He, there he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the ones to come. And he put, this is a completed tense, this is a past tense, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this takes place at his resurrection, more properly his ascension, that he is now above all things, and the church has been given the authority on earth. All the nations are already under his feet. Now the question's got to come by this point, how, on, how in the world is this an Easter season sermon? Well, it's an Easter sermon because what Jesus gives us is a confident assertion that he is this one that Daniel is speaking of and this plan of dominion of conquering is moving forward with absolute certainty. What the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus teaches us is that with absolute certainty, God is completing his plan to put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus Christ. And this is the confident assertion that, that this is happening now, that he is reigning now. So when we celebrate his crucifixion and resurrection, we are celebrating his ascension to the throne. And as his loyal subjects, we celebrate God's plan to subdue all the nations is happening now. And this means he's reigning now. He is conquering and putting the nations under his feet. And so we, his citizens here on earth, his soldiers on the ground, should be fighting the good fight of faith in the here and now. Not just sitting and waiting, because somewhere along the line, people got the impression for Christianity that, okay, I, I get saved and, and I repent of my sins and I join a local church and then I just kind of sit around and I wait for Jesus to come back and do all this. No, 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 Jesus is doing this, that is putting the nations in subjection right now. He is taking over the nations soul by soul as people are saved, constantly gaining more and more ground, so to speak. He is already coming. Take a look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. John's revelation, John is in exile on the island of Patmos. In other words, he got in trouble for preaching the gospel. And this would have the churches that he writes to concerned. You know, gee, John is being locked up. We're all being locked up. We're all being persecuted. So, Jesus inspires the book of Revelation, a revelation of himself to show, no, 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 I'm conquering. I have come to conquer. And each letter of the seven letters in the beginning of the book of Revelation end with this, to the one who conquers, and a promise of what will be given. And so we then are conquerors, or as Paul says, even more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. From now on, Jesus says, you will see this. He is already coming. Did you notice in chapter 1, verse 7 there of Revelation that that is a present tense? 
And did you notice, perhaps you can check this out later in Revelation chapter 22, five times the coming of Christ is mentioned there. In all five of those times, it's in a present tense, two of those times being an imperative prayer of his people. Becoming now, Lord Jesus. I want to take you back to Matthew 22.64. And I want to show you this right here. And this is what I want you thinking about as we draw to a close here. There, I've put in the wrong, <laughs> the wrong thing again. 26.64. All right. Um, Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see and the you there is plural and he in this context is speaking to the leaders who have him on trial and he's saying from now on you are going to see this happening and it's like wait a minute you mean they're going to see into heaven and see the son of man being presented coming on the clouds being presented to the ancient of days on the throne no 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 they're going to see the earthly fulfillment of that in other words they're going to see jesus taking over and he says you're going to see us in other words there's there's no way to stop it no way human no way supernatural this is not going to be stopped this is me, Jesus, announcing my plan that that is going forward and there's nothing to stop it. This dominion taking is underway. He's putting things in subjection. He's taking it now. And I know it's hard. It's, it's hard, dear ones, in this, in this day and age to imagine that Jesus is actually conquering because we look at the world and the world seems to be winning but I want you to notice under the surface there, and I want to turn your gaze to this, souls are still being saved. And maybe not so much in your neighborhood. Maybe you're in a dry time where you are and, and the church is not advancing the way you would hope it would. But you know, thousands upon thousands are coming to Christ in other areas of the world. Other areas of the world where things are much worse than they are here in the United States or in the Western world as we know it. There is always a faithful remnant of people preaching the gospel and more being added to their number daily. And I want you to think about what Jesus said here from their perspective. Jesus said to these men that arrested him, that had him on trial, he says, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, he is coming and taking your kingdom. He's coming to conquer and think about this they get jesus crucified and then all of a sudden there's these rumors of resurrection and the body is missing and then next thing they know a few weeks later peter and others are preaching proclaiming that this jesus has risen from the dead and doing miracles like he did and preaching like he did and they seem impossible to stop and they try to stop it but as they try to stop it it spreads even more and pretty soon they start to get reports from all around the known world that, hey, they've been here in our synagogues. These people that follow this Jesus and a bunch of our people went out to follow him. And, and now they're going to the Gentiles like crazy. And many, many people are coming to this. And worse and worse, it grew like wildfire. 
and they tried and they tried to stop it. But think about this, then suddenly in AD 70, the exclamation point on what Jesus was saying, which he had spoken of prior in that week before he was crucified, their temple was destroyed. And some of the people in that meeting with Jesus on that day saw it happen. And if they weren't there to see it happen, their children saw it happen. That everything they knew about their rule, about their dominion, about their religion was destroyed that day. Just as Jesus said it would be. Jesus did say the temple would be destroyed. And it was. They lived, many of them, to see their failure and to see the victory in Christ. So when I come and I say to someone, Happy Easter, I'm saying the Lord has risen and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, putting all the nations in subjection under his feet. And he will return one day and finish the work. And we can say legitimately that he is not only risen, but he reigns. He was crucified. He is risen and he reigns. Let's pray. Father God, the beautiful truth is that Jesus reigns. That Lord, the, the difficulties of this world, the difficulty of this time can sometimes make it hard for us to see that indeed he is reigning. But Lord, we pray today that you would reveal that to us that you would help us to understand these scriptures and to see that the reign of Christ is happening now. And that, Lord, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't bow our heads and, and allow our arms to droop in, in, in dejection, thinking that, Lord, we're defeated. But no, with Jesus, lift our heads to see him in his victory to see his victory one by one throughout this world as people are saved, as people come to him, as you continue your great work of salvation. Lord, let us indeed know that Christ reigns and let him have full reign of our hearts, that we indeed may work with him in this reigning, that we indeed may proclaim the gospel, that many more may be saved, that, Lord, we take from the evil one and we give to God, and we'll see you in your glory. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that's been a benefit to you, and I hope that as the Easter season unfolds that you will think of these things and that you will realize that we don't just declare that Jesus had a resurrection. We declare that he is risen and that he does reign. And so this is indeed a great celebration that we have together in this time. I encourage you to contact me if you have any questions about what you have heard and what you have seen. Uh, you can contact us at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. That's whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. And I hope you'll contact us there. I will answer those things personally. And I will see to it that, that you are engaged with. If you have any questions or concerns or even objections or disagreements with us, please make those things known to us. Let us open a dialogue and let us search the scriptures together to see if these things are true. God bless you. <laughs>